Well, I really appreciate that. I'm telling you, it has been a long, long time since people have put me in the category of a young man. And I thank you for that, brother, more than you know. In fact, I was coming over here tonight, and uh, right before on my way, I got a text. Uh, there's about four of us at Concord Road who have the, the same birthday, like two days apart. And so every year we gather together, and, and, and this lady uh, sent us the date, hey, July 11th, we're getting together. And, and you know, Tom, he hits 50, and, you know, and, and Dwayne, he's already a geezer. He hit 50 last year, and Dan just looks like a geezer. And so I came from that to being called a young man. So I really appreciate that. And I'm glad to be here. I, uh, I have been so looking forward to this. Found out a couple of connections that we have at Concord Road to the church here. Steve and Lisa Hilton found out this morning. They call this church their home church. And, uh, uh, that they used to worship here. And, of course, two of my favorite people in the entire world, uh, Daniel and Laura Boyd. And uh, they've been with us at Concord Road for about three years while Daniel was in, uh, in pharmacy school. And, and, and it broke my heart about a month ago when they had their last Sunday with us. Uh, but we sure enjoyed having them for three years, and I'm so glad to see them here. Uh, well, uh, before we begin, let's take a moment and ask God to bless us, please. Father, we are thankful for this wonderful opportunity that we can spend not only declaring your magnificence, but that we can spend contemplating your word. And Father, as we do that tonight, we would pray for uh, instruction and inspiration and insight, and that, Father, we'll uh, leave these pl- this, this place tonight with a, a, a deeper commitment uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so it's in the name of Jesus we would ask you to bless these few moments that we spend in study together, and we say, Amen. Amen. Well, Tony asked if I would, he said, now, he gave me the lapel mic, and he said, now, you are a moving preacher, aren't you? And I, I said, normally I am. In fact, 9,999 times out of, uh, out of 10,000, I, I am a moving preacher. If I stay right here, I don't know my name, but uh, this is one night... I won't be a moving preacher. I am a manuscript preacher tonight, and it's largely because of the material that we're dealing with. They asked if I would come, and it's a great thing that you guys are having on all the aspects of worship, and they asked me, of course, if I would deal with the subject of entertainment and worship. And uh, I know I don't have to tell you uh, that there have been some really monumental changes in American church life over the last few decades. And I know I don't have to tell you that nowhere have those changes been more monumental than in the area of public worship. There's a man by the name of Dr. Robert Godfrey. He's the president as well as a professor of church history at the Westminster Theological Seminary in California. It's a Presbyterian seminary. And he wrote a little book back in 1999 called Pleasing God in Our Worship. And he made this observation. He said, in the last few decades... Uh, American Protestants have seen more changes in worship forms than in any similar period since the 16th century. Another seminary president, the very well-known evangelical writer, Dr. John MacArthur, had this to say in a book he wrote uh, back in the late 90s called The Coming Evangelical Crisis. MacArthur said, Clearly, the corporate worship of the Lord's Day is undergoing a revolution that has few parallels in all of church history. You know, I think MacArthur's choice of the word revolution to describe what has happened to public worship in modern church life really is a perfect word because that's what it is. It is a revolution. It has been a revolt against the historic norms and the historic forms of Christian worship. Now, if you're thinking revolution might be too strong a term to describe uh, what has happened to public worship in the last couple of decades, let me call your attention to a primetime news special that aired a couple of decades ago. In fact, it was 1995. Nineteen years ago on ABC, the late, illustrious uh, broadcaster Peter Jennings uh, broadcast in primetime Uh, The special was called In the Name of God, and he was exploring the changes that were busting out in houses of worship all across the American church landscape. Now, I don't have to tell you folks that ABC News doesn't produce 
hour-long specials to be broadcast in prime time about small, isolated cultural events. Peter Jennings and ABC News don't waste their time and money on those kinds of things. They produce hour-long specials to be run in prime time about major cultural movements. They produce hour-long specials to be run in prime time about cultural revolutions. So what exactly is this revolutionary change that people have observed over the last several years taking place in public worship? Well, it's been documented so much over the last several years and discussed enough that you know exactly what it is. In a nutshell, over the last several years, scores of churches all across the American church landscape have poured their public services into an entertainment format to one extent or another. And while it's not really... uh, breaking news anymore that that has happened, it's still novel enough to where occasionally you'll see headlines about it. Uh, Here's a headline, for instance, that just appeared a few years ago. I've been at Concord Road about five years just before I moved. This showed up in the Knoxville News Sentinel. I was preaching over in the Knoxville area. Uh, The headline read, Refining the Message, Churches... Religious-themed attractions incorporate technology, entertainment to better connect with the masses. That was the headline. And after briefly describing the services of the 4,500-member Grace Baptist Church in the town of Carnes, which is a suburb of Knoxville, the article said this, Other churches and religious attractions in the Knoxville area are finding that adding an entertainment value to religion gets more people in the door. And then they showed a small picture of it, and the caption read, Grace Baptist Church in Carnes incorporates uh, entertainment, contemporary music and entertainment into church services. So what exactly does this entertainment format that has been so popular over the last couple of decades in American church life, what exactly does it look like? Well, if you'll read a lot of the articles, you'll see described things like uh, casual attire, Songs projected on big screens, contemporary songs, state-of-the-art audio and video technology. Well, let me say that I don't think an entertainment format really has anything to do with most of those things. I don't think an entertainment format has anything to do with projecting songs on a big screen. And I, I don't think that an entertainment format really has much to do with seeing a higher percentage of business casual attire on Sunday morning instead of traditional suits and And I don't think that uh, an entertainment-style worship really has anything to do with expanding our song repertoire to include many of the more recently composed so-called praise and or devotional-type songs. Although some of these things have obviously in the last few years or uh, in, in the past have generated some kind of discussion and maybe a little bit of controversy, I think there's been enough time for reflection and discussion of corporate worship that most people have rightly concluded that those kinds of things really are superficial matters. Well, then what is it? What does an entertainment format really look like? Well, Dr. John MacArthur, whom I quoted earlier, that well-known evangelical writer, I think he really begins to get at the heart of what an entertainment format looks like when he notes that what you're seeing across the board is that traditional preaching... Uh, is, in his words, being discarded or being downplayed in favor of newer means, such as drama, dance, and other entertainment forms. Now, what MacArthur is saying, obviously, is that historically the medium of instruction when God's people came together for worship was the spoken word. For 20 centuries of Christian history, uh, when people taught... They taught through the spoken word. You can really see that in places like 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13 where Paul urges Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. But now, however, as MacArthur contends, churches are increasingly choosing to use other mediums of instruction, entertainment-based mediums of instruction, 
And the two that he specifically mentioned, of course, were drama and dance. Of course, he's absolutely right. That, that's what has been happening. Uh, let me give you a couple of four instances. First, let me go back to that ABC News special that uh, was uh, produced a few years ago in the name of God. Uh, as Peter Jennings set out to explore all the historic changes that were taking place in houses of worship, one of the first places that he took his crew was to northern Illinois. He took it to a church that was at the time considered to be the cutting-edge church in these matters. It was a church called the Willow Creek Church near Chicago, and, and I'm sure that some of you probably heard of the Willow Creek Church. Well, Peter Jennings was interviewing their preacher, a man by the name of Bill Hybels, and, and Jennings said to Hybels, it didn't feel to me at all religious to be in the auditorium. It was really more like a theater. Is that intentional? And without any hesitation, Hybels responded, yes, it was intentional. And then as Jennings talked with some who attended that church, one of the worshipers told him, oh, it's like going to a movie, only better. Another example of this feature of entertainment-styled services can be seen in a particular article that I, uh, well, the one that I mentioned just a few minutes ago that appeared just uh, right before I left the Knoxville area in the Knoxville News Sentinel. And as it discussed this entertainment format in this particular church, it reports that, quote, among other things, dramas are incorporated into each of the sermons. Let me give you another example uh, of, uh, of this feature of entertainment-styled services. This one showed up in the Tennessee not too long ago. The headline is, They Take to Feet in Praise. And here are a few excerpts from that article. Maybe the blame is on Elvis, or American Bandstand, or the naked frolics of Woodstock. But somehow the word dance became a major dirty word in church. Some Christians here, in churches, or in professional dance companies, are trying to refurbish that image and return it to its rightful place in worship. Mind you, they're not introducing the twist or the electric slide into Sunday services. They're using classical dance and, and ballet to tell the biblical stories and to express the joy of the Christian faith. The Lord is opening up people's eyes to the use of dance as a means of promoting the gospel Performers say the key is dance's visual impact, its ability to touch people's hearts and emotions with gesture and movements, not words. Michael Cadle, the director of one of these Christian dance organizations, said his dance organization, called Hosanna, uh, said they blend, they have a blend of classical and modern modes of dance trying to teach audiences that are wrapped up in a video culture that's moving faster and faster every day. The younger generation, he says, is no longer satisfied just to see a guy talking in a microphone. We're on the verge of seeing Christian media go to another level, he said. Let me give you one more example of this particular feature of entertainment-styled service. It's from, again, the Maryville paper, uh, again, just shortly before I left. It was a community paper in the hometown of Maryville. Here's what the, red li the headline said. Step to the music, uh, the message. Church dance ministry spreads the word of Christ's love. And the article goes on to report that the co-directors of this ministry, and I quote, wanted to form a group that would express freedom through worship. Their group, the article goes on to say, quote, performs a variety of dance styles, including interpretive, lyrical, and hip-hop. And also perform dramatic pieces incorporating sign language. So when we talk about, well, what do you mean when you're talking about an entertainment-styled service? That is one fundamental characteristic of what we're talking about. One fundamental characteristic of an entertainment-style service is the replacement of the spoken word with the use of entertainment-based media for instruction. Now, another fundamental feature of this entertainment format, a second fundamental feature, is the style of music. You know, many have correctly observed that the majestic melodies and the majestic anthems that have characterized the worshiping church for centuries 
have been increasingly sidelined in recent years. And instead, they're being replaced with driving beats and loud dynamics, pulsating rhythms of popular culture. Soft rock, hip-hop, pop, jazz, country are just a few of the genres of music now that churches are actually appropriating for their services from the arts and the entertainment aspects, uh, elements of our popular culture. And of course, to pull off this type of music, if you're going to use rock and and rap and hip-hop and jazz and country, if you're going to use that, you've got to have the right elements. And so increasingly, uh, over the last few years, uh, the centerpiece of the musical service in these churches is all of the elements of a standard rock band. Let me give you a few for instances of this particular feature of entertainment services. Again, I go back to the Maryville Daily Newspaper, the Daily Times, and they recently profiled a church plant in Maryville called the Vineyard Christian Community. And as they're describing that particular church plant, here's what the preacher had to say about it. The music is very contemporary. We have a full band. Then, after a few more comments about uh, creating a conducive environment for worship, he said, it's not just rock and roll. We have a lot of fun redoing hymns. Now, I want you to note that statement, it's not just rock and roll. When he says it's not just rock and roll, he means it is rock and roll. It's just not only rock and roll. And here's another for instance. This one again appeared in the Nashville, Tennessee a few years ago. The headline was, New Pentecostal Wave Dividing Black Baptists. The lengthy article really began to discuss how some former predominantly black Baptist churches were transitioning to, in their words, quote, an exciting worship experience. And one of the changes that was made to create this, quote, exciting worship experience was, in the words of this article, Organ and piano are giving way to hard-driving keyboards and drums. Let me give you one more example of this particular feature. And again, this appeared in the Knoxville paper. Uh, The headline was, Crunk for Jesus. And here are the first couple of paragraphs. The bass drops, arms waving from side to side, shoot up in the air. All right, y'all, yells Eugene G. Whiz Bailey with a mic in one hand and the other pointing toward the sky. Let's get it crunk up in here for Jesus. Some worshipers with sagging jeans and do-rags bounce to the beat. Yeah, Christians can get it crunk, Bailey yells. Just like Little John. He's a rapper, in case you don't know that. Just like Little John. It's like hip-hop music video for God every Thursday during the praise and worship portion of The Remnant. That's the name of the church. The Remnant, a hip-hop style church founded by husband and wife ministers Thomas and Marie Dean. So there you go. You wonder, what now what exactly are you talking about when you talk about this, this entertainment style service uh, that has just... Uh, uh, just made its way across the United States and Western culture at breakneck speed. Well, it's those two elements predominantly. Uh, The use of entertainment-based instruction, such as drama and dance, and the use of musical styles of pop culture, rock, pop, hip-hop, driven by the standard pieces of a rock band. But there is a third central feature of this entertainment-style worship revolution and that is the adoption of performance-style music. And in places where performance-style music existed already, and what I mean by performance-style music is, uh, is uh, solos or quartets, that kind of thing, uh, it, where that existed before, what we're talking about is taking that to a whole new level, turning it up several notches in terms of polish, in terms of professionalism, in terms of presentation, making it a very personality-centered feature of the service. In churches that have adopted an entertainment format, when the whole congregation sings, if the whole congregation sings, they are basically just providing backup for the person or for the praise team whose amplified voices are soaring far above the congregation's voice. Let me give you a couple of four instances here. Just a few years ago, a teenager who worships with the Palm Beach Lakes congregation down in West Palm Beach, Florida, sent me a newspaper article. 
had been there before, talked about worship, and, and he knew I was interested, and so he'd clipping things and, and mailing them to me. It was pretty cool. And, and, and so he sends me this article that he found in his paper, uh, and it profiled Palm Beach County's so-called megachurches. And a megachurch, in case you're wondering what qualifies as a megachurch, it's churches whose average attendance, weekly attendance, is more than 2,000 people. And so here's how the article began. Saxophones for Christ, I mean saxophones for the Savior, congas for Christ, jumping for Jesus. The experience of the megachurch may not be right for those who prefer silent meditation or a sanctified snooze in the back pew. The megachurch provides a joyful noise unto the Lord, make no mistake about it. Not every church features a high-tech, professional-style entertainment component, but those that do provide a way to relate to the Creator that can only be described as fun. At Christ Fellowship in Palm Beach Gardens, enormous video screens flank the altar, which is as big as a theatrical stage. Three videographers take their places before the service begins, and the colored spotlights come up as the music minister and a praise team, 16 high-energy singers who might impress the judges on American Idol, take their places on the stage. The state-of-the-art music is polished, professional vocal music accompanied by a tight band with lofty ceilings, spotlights, and big screens. The sanctuary of Christ Fellowship feels more like an entertainment venue than a conventional church. Well, yeah, that's what it's supposed to feel like because that's exactly what it is. Moving on to another of Palm Beach County's mega churches, the Church of All Nations, the article described its service this way. And note the personality-centered polished performance when it comes to the music. Inside the 23,000-square-foot main building of Church of All Nations, music minister Mario Bertoni, a bulked-up version of Latin pop sensation Ricky Martin, zips back and forth across the stage, singing in front of a band that includes a brass section, congas, and a grand piano. At certain points of his high-energy song, the Spirit moves him and he jumps for joy, and two young girls emerge from the pews pointing small cameras at him. Well, now hopefully you get the sense of what we're talking about. Uh, we've marked off about, oh, 17 or 18 years, about 19 years actually, since ABC News discussed all of this in front of a primetime national audience. Uh, in that time, there have been a lot of different voices from a lot of different corners of American church culture that have strongly resisted this revolutionary change. But despite their resistance and despite their objections, the fact of the matter is, as you have seen from the more recent newspaper articles that I've read, Entertainment-styled services have just become more deeply ingrained in our culture. So, what are the forces that have driven all of this? Uh, what are the forces that have pushed such a historical revolution? And what are, the, what are the forces that are driving such a historical revolution in Christian worship? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying things, I think this revolution has been driven largely, and it's still being driven largely, by stagnant or declining church attendance. Uh, Entertainment-styled services are seen by a lot of church leaders as a remedy for that, as a remedy for stagnation or decline in their membership. Over the last several years, many church growth experts have virtually promised church leaders that they would post attendance gains simply by tailoring the church's public services to the tastes and the felt needs of a generation of self-centered, overly stimulated, entertainment-saturated, media-savvy consumers. To attract the world, they've told us, all we have to do is update our services. And that means what we have to do is we have to narrow the gap between historic Christian worship and the entertainment forms of popular culture. These experts in church growth assure us that if we will just 
do that, if we'll just narrow that gap and they give example after example, then we too can experience exploding attendance and membership. We too can have bigger budgets, more lavish physical plants, growing staffs, and an ever-expanding array of programs. You know, a couple of the articles that I've mentioned tonight show what I'm talking about. One was from that paper in Knoxville that I read to you from. Let me quote you again some of the same lines from that article. Now listen to it. Other churches and religious attractions in the Knoxville area are finding that adding entertainment value to religion gets more people in the door. This time, did you catch those last few words? It gets more people in the door. See, that's it. That's what it's all about. And the one uh, New Pentecostal wave dividing black Baptists, uh, here are a few excerpts from that article that I didn't read you before. Like other denominations, black Baptists worry about stagnant membership roles and finding the secret of attracting young people and new members. Full gospel churches believe they have the solution. Create an exciting worship experience. One night last week, Greater Grace Temple gave a glimpse of the new wave. The church played host to a revival where the out-of-town guest evangelist never quite got around to preaching because worshipers became engulfed in joyful, even frenzied praise and dancing. It got wild, but wild is wonderful, said David DeVell, who joined the church after being raised in a traditional Baptist church locally. The Baptist old way is out the window. I feel free to praise, no questions asked, he said. Advocates of the full gospel approach, the article goes on to say, say they are drawing young people and renewing the dormant life of some Baptist churches. Dress is casual, denominational identity is downplayed, emotional expression is welcome, organ and piano give way to hard-driving keyboards and drums. Fundamentally, that is what it's all about. It is about... It has been about that, it is about that, and it will continue to be about that. It's fundamentally seen as a solution to stagnant attendance and membership roles. It's all about swelling pews with new customers and holding on to old customers by getting rid of the boredom that threatens to drive them away. Now, some of you may be saying, did, wait a minute, did I just hear you say custom, customers? Yeah, you heard me say customers. And, and that wasn't a slip of the tongue. I chose that word purposely. Customers. Because I really believe that it best fits the context of the movement. Uh, in this movement, it seems quite clear that the primary forces guiding these churches are market forces. They are fixated on increasing or maintaining market share. And in an effort to increase or maintain the market share in a competitive market, they have been lured by the siren song of corporate marketing models for attracting and keeping customers. And so when a church decides they're going to operate like that, when they're going to operate in the sphere of the marketplace, it's almost inevitable that people come to be viewed primarily in terms of a potential customer. Well... There's no disputing the fact. I'm not ever going to dispute the fact that entertainment-styled services may help swell attendance. Uh, it, it, it probably will. Um, and, and I'm not going to dispute the fact that these types of services have turned a few churches into mega-churches. It really has. Uh, and, and I know for a fact that church leaders sometimes look at these situations and they have a little bit of envy and, and they're tempted to venture down that road just a little ways. And, and, and if they maybe venture down that road just a little bit, that they will experience some of that same kind of apparent success. But I really believe that there are several reasons why we need to really resist the temptation to venture down that road, even just a little bit. I want to offer you just a few reasons tonight that we should reject the idea of taking Christian worship and pouring it into an entertainment format. The first reason is it just reinforces the modern worshiper's man-centered, self-serving view of worship. You know, when you study the biblical approach to worship, excuse me, 
you quickly discover that worship is all about God. That biblical worship is centered on God. True worship by its very nature is praise. In fact, the very word worship means to ascribe to God the worth that He is due. As the psalmist says in Psalm 96 and verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. Worship then by its very nature is an occasion when God's people come and we focus on Him and we declare His magnificence. We enter worship with the primary aim of praising Him for what He has done, for who He is, and for what He continues to do as the Creator and the Sustainer and the Redeemer of mankind. You know, with that in mind, let me return to one of those articles that I quoted earlier and read to you that last paragraph again. It's a quote from one of the ministers of one of those churches profiled. He says, By nature as Pentecostals, we are more experiential We used to be called holy rollers, but charismatics and even Baptists saw that waving your hands, moving around, or dancing connected with people. People want to feel God. They tell me we like that we felt something today. Notice again what he said. People want to feel God. They tell me we like that we felt something today. Similarly, in an article that I mentioned twice earlier about that new Pentecostal wave It's dividing black Baptist churches in the Nashville area. The preacher of that church being profiled defended the new approach by saying, young people want to be excited. Now those statements, think about those statements. People want to feel God. Uh, People want to be excited. We like that we felt something today. Those kinds of statements reflect reflect a harsh reality of our times. And that harsh reality is that most worshipers have shifted their focus from God to themselves. All of those quotes clearly suggest that most worshipers today don't come to worship primarily to declare the magnificence of God They come in pursuit of an intense, intoxicating emotional experience. They come to worship and they say, in effect, here I am. Make me feel something. Make me feel good. You know, I agree wholeheartedly with a statement that I heard Brother Jack Lewis make in a lecture at Freed Hardeman several years ago. He said that if modern worshipers went to public services primarily to worship God, there would be much less criticism of traditional services. Unfortunately, Brother Lewis observed, instead of going to worship to call on the Lord, he said they tend to go and say, here I am. What can you do for me? You know, whether they're conscious of it or not, most modern worshipers are centered on themselves and they're focused primarily on pursuit of their pleasure. They genuinely believe, they genuinely believe that they are worshiping God. But in reality, they're just worshiping their emotions. With this in mind, one of the most fundamental objections to an entertainment-styled service is that those types of services just reinforce uh, that focus on pursuing an intoxicating emotional experience. You know, regardless of how well-intentioned a church's decision is to adopt an entertainment format, the fact of the matter is entertainment centers us on ourselves. And entertainment centers us on our own pleasure. But there can be no true worship if there is no escape from the prison of ourself. Unfortunately, as long as churches continue to frame worship in an entertainment format in order to give worshipers that intoxicating emotional experience that they're demanding, modern worshipers are still going to continue to be fixated on themselves. As long as churches continue to frame worship as entertainment to give worshipers the emotional stimulation they're demanding, the focus of these worshipers will continue to be on themselves and their pleasure rather than on God. Worship is not, true worship is not a self-serving event, no matter how often the name of God may be invoked. Let me give you another reason that we need to reject 
this attempt to pour worship into an entertainment format. Entertainment-styled services tend to diminish the sense of awe and the sense of reverence that should be present in an encounter with God. You know, one of the stated goals of entertainment-styled services is to create a, a, an atmosphere that is very, very casual, uh, very, very informal, very, very relaxed. And by utilizing the entertainment format, that kind of atmosphere really is easily created. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, it's hard to promote comfort and true biblical worship at the same time. Because a vital element of true worship is awe. And people aren't comfortable normally when they truly sense the presence of the awe-inspiring. Instead of being truly just totally comfortable, they, they feel diminished. And in a real sense can even feel troubled. You see, when God manifested Himself in thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai, the Scriptures say in Exodus 19 and verse 16, all the people who were in the camp trembled. When Isaiah witnessed God's majesty, as we read just a moment ago, one of the young men read it there in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the majesty of God, he cried, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Job was confronted with the majesty of God, he confessed his lack of understanding and he worshiped saying, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job chapter 42 verses 1 through 6. When Peter witnessed a miracle which validated the identity of Jesus as Messiah, he fell on his face in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8 and he exclaimed, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And when John turned around to see the voice that was speaking to him in Revelation chapter 1, again as we saw just a moment ago as one of the young men read for us from this passage, John, it says, fell at his feet as though he were dead. Now I know God doesn't manifest Himself in those ways today. Uh, but nevertheless, we have to understand that worship still is very much an encounter between God and His people. And as a as an encounter between God and His people, the, the occasion has to be characterized by reverence and awe. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that a sense of awe and reverence is very easy to dispel from a service of worship. And one of the easiest ways to dispel a sense of awe and majesty is design it primarily to be fun and entertaining. Entertaining just too easily strips worship of that vital element of awe. It drives away every whiff of awe, every whiff of reverence, mystery, and transcendence from the room. At least it drives it away to the extent that the nature of God demands. You know, I believe that statement that Peter Jennings made to Bill Hybels at the Willow Creek Church shows this to be true. As I told you earlier, Jennings said after visiting their service, it didn't feel at all to me religious to be in the auditorium. It was really more like a theater. What Peter Jennings was simply observing was, I didn't get a sense of sacredness in your services. Um, and responding to the services of one church which adopted to a format of this type of format, one of the researchers of this particular denomination that was troubled by this trend said, we can too easily lose our sense of awe, our wonder of something holy. And his concern was legitimate. You know, remember that time in Exodus chapter 3, that burning bush experience, that burning bush episode, when Moses encountered God there? He was told to stay back and to take off his sandals because the ground that he was standing on was holy ground. You can just try to put yourself in the place of Moses and in his sandals at that moment. And just imagine that sense of awe and that sense of reverence and that sense of mystery and that sense of transcendence that must have just absolutely gripped him on that particular occasion as he conversed with God. And as I try to think of any description, and of all the descriptions that we might use to describe what worship is, I really believe that that episode might contain the best description 
holy ground. Worship is holy ground. I love that song, This Is Holy Ground. We're standing on holy ground. Because that is truly what worship is. It is holy ground. And as we approach God in worship today, we must approach Him with no less reverence and no less awe than Moses did that day on Mount Horeb. And churches that appreciate that fact, they will ensure that their services are presented in such a way that worshipers will know that they really are participating in something sacred. That a sense of sacredness will be present. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way is to reject an entertainment service, styled service format for the service. One year after teaching a class at uh, a school called Wheaton College, it's an evangelical Bible-based school in northern Illinois, uh, the well-known evangelical author Robert Weber said, he asked his students, he wanted some feedback. And he said, how can we make this material useful to evangelical Christians? And here is what his college class said, much to their credit. They replied, Restore a sense of awe and reverence. Restore a sense of mystery and transcendence. Unfortunately, as long as entertainment is the format of choices for churches, it will be virtually impossible to restore that kind of attitude. Very quickly, let me mention just a couple of more things. Uh, a third objection to this entertainment-style service that I have is that it really is the use of manipulative techniques to fabricate a religious experience. And we have to reject the temptation to manipulate people into faith. You know, it's no secret that entertainment-style services have been introduced largely, as I said, to cure spiritual boredom and, and to cure lagging church attendance. There's no doubt that a popular culture entertainment formula will generate excitement and enthusiasm, at least for a while. But it's not authentic enthusiasm for God. It's just a facsimile of a religious experience. It looks like enthusiasm for God, but it's enthusiasm for the experience. Uh, the enthusiasm that's present usually goes away after the last guitar lick fades away, after the last drum beat dies down, and after those last flourish of high notes disappear. Authentic enthusiasm for God is not the product of a worship engineer. Worship leaders have to be very careful to avoid the temptation to use manipulative techniques which are clearly intended to fabricate quick jolts of artificial enthusiasm. We really do have to remember that, as some people have pointed out, Jesus commanded Peter to feed his sheep, not manipulate his sheep. Fourth, a fourth objection to an entertainment-styled services is that they pervert worship by turning worship into therapy. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, we've already seen that the primary aim of entertainment-styled services is to promote generally happiness and good feelings in worshipers. And as much as anything, then, what we're saying is it's about making people feel good. It's about making worshipers feel comfortable so they'll want to come back. And, uh, and more than anything, more than anything, leaders of entertainment-styled services want to hear worshipers say that they really left worship and they really, really felt good. In short, in entertainment-styled services are really all about therapy. And it perverts the true meaning and purpose of worship. Keep in mind the primary objective, objective of true worship. We've already talked about it. It's not therapy. The primary purpose and aim of worship is praise. It's to give praise and adoration to God. How we feel when we leave worship really doesn't matter. Now, if we leave worship and we feel emotionally uplifted, great. There is nothing wrong if you feel emotional uplift when you leave worship. 
I mean, there are times, it is natural when you give your heart in worship to the Lord and you have that encounter with God in true, genuine worship, it will often lift you up and stimulate you emotionally. I'm absolutely not down on that. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't misunderstand me at all and hear me wrong. Uh, so I'm not saying that. But what I'm simply saying is emphasizing that in the end, when we leave worship, in the end, it really doesn't matter if we've experienced an emotionally intense, emotionally intoxicating experience or not. All that really matters in the end is did we, with hearts full of gratitude and thanksgiving to God, did we declare His magnificence with words of praise and adoration? That's true worship. True worship is not therapy. Let me give you just one more. Uh, There's many more objections that I have to entertainment-styled services, but we'll end with this one, a fifth objection. A fifth objection that I have to entertainment-styled services is that they don't have any New Testament or historical precedent at all. And it's not that drama and dance didn't exist in New Testament times. They did. In fact, drama and dance were well-known media of communication in the ancient world. And all you have to do to see that is just Look at the remains of the massive theaters that exist in Palestine and the rest of the Roman world. Those ruins attest to the centrality of entertainment in even New Testament times in Roman culture of Jesus' day. And then, of course, there's Jesus' frequent use of the term hypocrite. We see Him use it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 23, we see Him repeatedly use it to describe the Pharisees. Hypocrites. It's a bad word to us. But in Jesus' day, it was a word that was borrowed from the theater. It just simply meant an actor. That's what we mean when we talk about a hypocrite. Someone who's just playing a role. Uh, They're they're really not what they appear to be. That was the normal word for actor in Jesus' day. And not only was the theater a familiar part of life in New Testament times, but musical instruments were a familiar part of life in New Testament times. For instance, in Matthew 9.23, Jesus mentions flute players at the synagogue official's home when Jesus came there to raise His daughter from the dead. In Luke 7.32, He mentions flute-playing children as He makes an illustration. Luke 15.25, He mentions the older brother of the prodigal son hearing the music coming from the house when He was returning from the fields. So it's not like these things were absent from Jesus' time. Given this fact, it seems rather striking. At least it seems rather striking to me that the apostles in the early church didn't utilize an entertainment format when they assembled. At least there's absolutely no real evidence that they did, either in Scripture or in the uninspired writings of the earliest church fathers. Is this fact significant? Well, I think it is. I think it seems reasonable to think that if framing worship as entertainment would have been appropriate, the apostles... And the early church would have exploited this culturally relevant format. But the fact that they didn't seems to strongly suggest that there's a reason they didn't. And the reason they didn't is that it was not appropriate for Christian worship assemblies. You know, a few years ago, it's interesting where you find some quotes. You find quotes from a lot of people who are really concerned about the same things and express it well, even though there are significant theological differences between us. And I ran across one of those quotes from a Presbyterian scholar, a man by the name of D.G. Uh, Hart. Uh, it was an article called Postmodern Evangelical Worship. It appeared a few years ago in a, in a journal called Calvin Theological Journal. He says this. He mentions a man's name and he says, In his fine study of worship, he concludes with a reflection about mainline Presbyterian worship that applies well to what has transpired in contemporary evangelical churches. In our evangelistic zeal, he writes, we are looking for programs that will attract people. We think we have to put honey 
on the lip of the bitter cup of salvation. It is the story of the wedding of Cana all over again, but with this difference. At the crucial moment when the wine failed, we took matters into our own hands and used those five stone jars to mix up a batch of Kool-Aid instead. He says, such is the state of affairs in contemporary evangelical worship. The thin and artificial juice of popular culture has replaced the finely aged and well-crafted drink of the church throughout the ages. Yeah, it's nothing new. As I said, this has been happening for some time now. But it has just become more solidly a part of our culture. We live in that culture. We live in this context. We don't live in a vacuum. And so all the pressure from the culture is going to be felt. It just naturally is. And we have to be informed. Our view of worship, our understanding of worship, and our practice of worship, may it forever be biblically informed rather than culturally driven. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we could spend a few moments this evening thinking about worship. And Father, understanding the trends that we face, we know that every generation faces its own unique challenges and we face ours. And our prayer, dear Lord, is that we will always, always seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. And that, Father, that we will resist all of the cultural pressures that try to pull us away from worship as you have set forth worship in your word. And so, Father, as we strive to be worshipers in spirit and in truth, we pray that you will be honored in all that we do, in all that we say, and that, Father, we will, that you will open doors of opportunity, that we can reach out to others who also aspire to truly find their satisfaction in you and your word. And, Father, it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, obviously, this hasn't been a lesson designed to tell you how to become a Christian. But we would never stop. I'm, I'm sure I know this congregation well enough to know that you share the same perspective I do. And that is you won't stop without giving someone an opportunity to obey the gospel if they haven't. If you've never named Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you believe that He's truly the crucified and resurrected Messiah, and if you've never repented of your sins and been buried with Jesus Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we want to give you that opportunity tonight to come to Him and let Him do for you what you can't do for yourself, and that is save yourself. If you've done that, but maybe you've wandered away. Uh, maybe you've been distracted by the things of the world. And even though you're here tonight, you look down deeply into your heart, and you have to admit that your life's just not where it needs to be. If that's the case, I hope that you'll make whatever change is necessary. If it's something that needs to take place where you're sitting just between you and God, do that. But if it's something that needs to be taken care of in a public way, we hope you'll do that. We'd love to pray with you and for you. And so if you have a spiritual need that you need to take care of this evening, please do it right now while together we stand and while we sing.